that's something that more companies should think about when building community or um, building a marketplace is um, if, if you're trying to convince people to become a seller or a creator or something on your platform and they've never taken that action before and never shown any right. sort of signal that they're bought into it, that's a really long journey to move them right. to the point where they're going to be a contributor to the platform. Whereas if you start with people who are already showing that behavior, you mm. can get to, you, you can prove your experiment. You can get the community market fit a lot quicker. Welcome everybody. Uh, I'm so excited for kickstarting this uh, community initiative slash uh, content creation platform for us, which is the Community Decoded podcast powered by Threado, uh, where I chat with world-class community builders and together we dissect, decode, and uh, dive a little deeper on how they've built communities before uh, or how they're doing right now. I'm Sharat, your host. I'm the head of community at Threado. Uh, let's get into it. And I'm so thrilled uh, to open our first episode with none other than David Spinks, uh, a community legend and a leader. Thank you, David, for joining. Of course. Very, very happy to be here. Appreciate you uh, inviting me to the first episode of the show that's very exciting no pressure <laughs> no pressure i know you deliver uh, i'm sure like there'll be some nuggets uh, in the next one hour or so uh let me let me uh, give give you guys a brief intro for for folks who don't know david which is i think uh, very rare if you're in community and startups david is a founder author a father uh, a community expert with over 13 years of experience in working at the intersection of communities and businesses he founded CMX, a network of uh, incredible community professionals, which eventually acquired by Bevy. David is a wealth of community knowledge, and quite often I refer uh, him as my mentor and kind of like uh, you know approach him for everything community advice uh, and whatnot, like even life advice. Uh, David, you know, again, I appreciate you taking time. Uh, let's get into it. I think right off right off the bat, I do have a. Uh, very, very generic question. Let's start with your origin story. Like, tell me about uh, your first love of building a community. My first love? Yeah, first love. When did you like, fell in love with, okay, I, I want to I pursue this as a career or I just love uh, this new skill of bringing people together. Yeah, I mean, for me, it came out of necessity. It was survival. Um, it was a time in my life where I was really struggling to find community and friendship and human connection in the world around me. I was in middle school and, um, you know, I think when people struggle to find connection, they start exploring unique ways of finding that connection and they move further to the fringes. And sometimes that's a good thing. You find some really cool unique niche that you can find connection in sometimes it's bad right people go to extremes um to to find right. belonging even if those extremes are negative um mm -hmm. that's why you see people join hate groups or terrorist groups things like that mm. um for me it was video games uh tony hawk's right. pro skater 4 was a game that i became really obsessed with and it was actually the first game that was designed specifically to be played online for mm. consoles um at least for playstation 
And so um, it was like a whole new world that opened up to me because I was just playing this game for hours every day and started to get to know other people who would play a lot, started a clan. Uh, we would like practice together and have competitions together. We launched an online forum and we had hundreds of people participating in the forum and I was doing everything that community managers do, managing conversations, dealing with trolls, uh, redesigning the, the community platform. Luckily, my uh, co-founder of the clan was a, a developer, so he built the website and I did most of the community management work. And that was kind of my first experience with um, building community online. And yeah, it opened my eyes a lot. I think, hmm. you know, back then it was still really weird to interact with other humans on the internet. It was not right. something that was normally accepted in society, certainly not if you were in middle school. Right. Um, but through that video game, I started joining IRC channels and participating in other online forums. And anytime any sort of platform came out to connect with people or create content online, I was I was very quick to adopt it and very comfortable with it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that experience just made me abnormally comfortable with connecting with people on the Internet. Mm. And and that kind of set off the path that ultimately led it led to it becoming my career. That's an interesting point. I think, you know, it, it came from a necessity, which I feel, uh, you know, a lot many people, I think these days are not getting out of uh, when, when they join a community. They just want to, like, meet some you know, some people of like-minded folks. I feel there is a strong sense of uh, reason for you to to get into uh, building community. And I feel, I, I think that foundation is really, really important if someone who's starting, there should be some intention. The, the, the point I want to make is uh, it shouldn't be, it should be derived from a pure, uh, you know, something that comes from yourself, like within, right? And, uh, I want to talk about uh, you've you've started many uh, in-person communities as well. Like CMX is one of them. So, how did the transition go? Like uh, from online being your first love, like online communities, being in forums, transitioning from not not meeting a person you are talking on a day-to-day -day basis. For example, take that uh, gamer or any random person. I, I don't know, like who where they joined from, versus like interacting with someone, you know, firsthand and then building a, build, making an impression on them and trying to like build an in-person community is a different ball game. So what's, what's that transition like and how much of your lessons or experience worked uh, in real life, like building in real life communities? Yeah, I mean, the video game stuff pretty much only stayed online. <laughs> it was a group of people right. who very intentionally wanted to connect online and weren't that interested in connecting in person. I would meet some people at like uh, competitions and stuff, but there weren't that many, honestly. It was a pretty small community around that game at the time. And there weren't a whole lot of, you know, the, the world of competitive gaming that exists today did not exist at that point. <coughs> Excuse me. I still have a cough. So sorry if I cough in everyone's <laughs> ear once in a while. Um, but yeah, I think like what was cool was, um, that was one of my first experiences of feeling accepted and included and playing a leadership role in a community. Right. Um, and then I was able to start to find community in unique places in, in, in real life. Uh, mm -hmm. once I got to high school 
And, you know, it was interesting because, like, I always played sports. Um, I, mm. I've always been very competitive and athletic. I've played pretty much every sport that you can play. Mm. Um, and, like, I love sports. Like, to this day, I'm obsessed with playing basketball. I play all the time. We had a big win on Sunday. Very, very proud of our oh, team. Oh, congrats. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were last place. And in the everyone makes the playoffs. And we knocked out the first place team. Wow. In uh, the first round. So, so I'm still riding high on that. You're, you're an underdog there. Big underdogs. Big underdogs. Um, but like, I never felt like I belonged in those communities, um, mm. as much as I love the sport itself, the people and the culture in it was a space that I, I found it really hard to fit into. Um, mm. and then in high school, I started finding community through again, kind of more like fringe community spaces. So, um, it was kind of related to gaming, but <laughs> I got really mm -hmm. into pump it up. Uh, which mm -hmm. is like DDR. I don't know if you know. Um, it's like the it's like a dance game that you play at arcades that mm -hmm. has like the dance pad. And um, I got, me and my buddy from high school like ended up going to the arcade twice a week and meeting up with this group of people. And we dressed really funny. I, <laughs> I hope there are no pictures of me on the internet from that right. time. <laughs> um, lots of bracelets. We wore like those big UFO pants. Um, and but like we would play that game over and over and over and over again and and right. and then I I don't remember exactly how I got into it but um I ended we ended up connecting with a bunch of people on like the hardcore music scene which is mm. another really weird fringe space in the music world um, hardcore music is like kind of like metal but like a lot scarier mm -hmm. like growling and um, you know you get into those mosh pits there's no pushing in them it's all these like um, hardcore dance moves like <laughs> swinging your fists and spin kicks and things like that right. um very weird uh if like i didn't actually get really immersed in it like i always looked at it as a super weird thing to do but right. once you go and you like participate in in that community it's so small it's so tight Mm -hmm. Going into one of those mosh pits is like the greatest adrenaline rush you'll ever have in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, and I became really immersed in that community. And so I started mm -hmm. finding kind of in-person community opportunities where mm. um, I felt accepted. I felt included. I felt, you know, quote unquote, cool uh, for, <laughs> you know, probably the first time in my life. And um, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting thing, right? We think of cool as right. like this Hollywood version of the jock or whatever. Yeah. But I think... You know, we're all just looking to figure out how to be cool in our own ways and in our own right. spaces. So I found spaces where I could feel cool. Right. And, it's such uh, a, I think it's such a personal thing, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. not like a generalized thing. I feel the stereotype is making it like super, uh, super generalized. But what you said is really, really apt and uh, really valid for communities who are, you know, who have a specific niche you have to be cool to your niche that's it and you have your own rules and you have to follow your own uh, self to like be presentable and whatnot so anyway uh exactly just wanna... no i think it's a it's a huge point it's, it's something i talk about a decent amount how um like your goal as a community builder is to create a space where people uh can feel like they are cool for who they are especially right. if they're a group of people who are made to not feel cool in right. other parts of their life Right? Absolutely. Like with CMX, community managers were still kind of seen as these like junior, lower level, uh, right. undervalued people. And then we created a space where they were celebrated and right. they were the hero. Right. Um, indie hackers did it for, you know, mm -hmm. independent entrepreneurs. Right. Like you right. see these kinds of examples where, you know, 
Salesforce admins. Like you would mm. like not call those people cool in most of society. Right. And then they created the trailblazer program where they right. are like celebrities. So right. um, you create a space where somebody gets to feel cool for the first time in their life. You're going to have a really powerful community. Right. That's such an important lesson right there, you know, for listeners who are who are building communities, you just have to make people special and especially your niche. And, you know, you have to do everything in your capacity to celebrate them, empower them, champion them. So uh, thanks for that tip. So all all of your life, at least in the in the beginning years, you were into gaming, you're into sports, you're into like weird dance moves and music, <laughs> metal and all that. How come that David Spinks uh, went from all that, which is nothing to do with tech and nothing to do with business building, nothing to do with entrepreneurship, came from there to here? Like, uh, what was like the pivotal point for you? Where did you saw, uh, I think you, you've worked really well. The, the Tony Hawk's pro skating community, which you built, you know, it's kind of like your foundation in a way, which I, you know, I read your book as well. You've, you talked very detail about it as well. Uh, so my question is that side of world has nothing to do with this side of world, which is tech, you know, entrepreneurship founders and startups and whatnot. Where was the bridge? You know, uh, how, how did that happen? Yeah. I, I think like I could also point to a thread throughout my life of, um, wanting to be, an entrepreneur, an inventor, a creator, you know, Tony Hawk's pro skater is an example where like I wanted to build the thing. I liked being in that leadership position. I like creating something. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was really young, there was a girl in my high school. Was it high school? I don't know. I might've been younger and she was in high school at the time. And um, there was like a, a science competition or something like that. And she had invented a wallet where you would put a dollar bill or a $10 bill, whatever, into it. And it would say right. out loud what you put in for people who are blind oh. to know, you know, what bills they have. And mm -hmm. I just remember she like gave a presentation about it and like won all these awards for it. And I just remember seeing her as this like hero in my mind, like what mm. I wanted to aspire to be, this idea of invention. And, you know, I guess I didn't know what that looked like at the time. Would that be like inventing hardware like she did? Um, mm. Software wasn't something in my awareness at all um, <laughs> or most people's awareness at that yeah. at that time. And, um, and then so I think that was kind of always in my psyche. My dad's uh, an entrepreneur. He's a sales guy. He's worked for himself his whole life. He's very scrappy. My mom. Um, bo both of them are immigrants, both very scrappy, work multiple oh, wow. jobs. They've always had a very entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that was instilled in me from a very young age. And so, um, you know, then, then I went to college and I went to school at SUNY Geneseo, which is not a school you want to go to for business. It's a fine arts <laughs> college. Um, really good school, just not good for business. Um, right. I went for poli sci originally um, because I started, I just got, I guess, I guess, Actually, I did model Congress in high school and that I really enjoyed the process of debating a topic of mm -hmm. uh, what was my favorite thing about that is it would force you to take the opposing side to an argument, right? Because mm. you would volunteer for a topic, but you don't get to choose your side. And mm. so I'm forced to argue a side that I don't necessarily believe, which mm. I found to be such a powerful way to learn and mm. um, empathize and understand different perspectives. And so I was like, cool, I like debate. I like talking about these kinds of policy questions. 
maybe mm-hmm. I'll like poli sci. And I went to school for that. But then I realized I hated everyone <laughs> in those <laughs> classes. They all felt very like snobby and stuck up and know-it-alls. And I just right. like wasn't enjoying, you know, actually following that, that career path. So I was mm-hmm. undecided for a little bit. And then um, I just ended up kind of, leaning back into the idea of business and mm. um, became a business administration major, which was like the broadest thing mm-hmm. I could think of. <laughs> and um, didn't really know what I'd want to do with that um, at the time. But um, right. once I started getting to my junior and senior year, um, that's where it started to merge for me, this idea of online communities. I was, I was still very active in online communities. I, mm like was first on MySpace. Um, Facebook had just come out when I started college. So we were kind of like that first Facebook generation that right. when it was designed just for college students, like that was us. Um, and and then I would go to these marketing classes where they're talking about like the traditional marketing mix. And then, you know, in the business administration major, you take all these different kinds of business courses. So I'm taking like assembly line management and all these mm. courses that just like didn't seem relevant to me at all. And hmm. none of them were talking about online communities or really even the internet at the time. Hmm. And and I was like, this is, this seems like a missed opportunity. Like to me, what I see in my generation, what I see in the world is like, everything's moving into these online social platforms and communities. And right. we're not talking about it at all in our marketing class. Um, I ended up pitching the business department on starting a course on social media and right. marketing. And they said no, <laughs> but then I convinced the computer science department to do it. And I actually helped build that first course, um, right. on social media. And, mm. and that, that was kind of where it started merging for me. I had read it. I read a book called groundswell and it was around when tribes came out by Seth Godin. Both of them kind of spoke to this idea of like community driven business mm. and it started kind of coming together and clicking for me. Um, so I just started getting every opportunity I could to do that kind of work. I started the university's first blog. I worked for the college union, um, mm-hmm. organizing events. Um, I started writing my own blog regularly right. and that's how I got my first job as a community manager as a startup, read my blog and asked me to come be their community management intern for the summer while they went through an accelerator program. Nice. Uh, a lot, a lot of this reminds me of, uh, you know, about my own personal, uh, life too, like the last three years, as as a community builder, you you have to do a lot of things for yourself and put it out, and putting out will give you serendipitous momentum moments like this. What you said, like the blog you wrote, the work you did for university, everything compounded over time, and you first your first job as a community manager, right? I feel same thing for me is you know I, I did a lot of projects on my own as as a, as a builder maker. And a startup called Draftbit saw like, hey, this guy's building like shit using no code tools. Let let's actually hire him. He has a community angle too. So people, and the reason I want to make the point I want to make is, community building is not just uh, bringing people together, which is I think the foundation. But it is it is about creating serendipitous moments like this, and for yourself and for others too. And that is so uh, fascinating to hear, and a lot of people they just miss. They just want like immediate results, or uh, they just can't wait long enough to eat the fruits. Anyway, 
I'll stop the rant there. But uh, after your after your community manager job, I think you were the director of community at Zarly. Uh, mm-hmm. So, how was the journey at Zarly is for you? How how is how's uh, the first days of you know as a, as a commu- as a director of community for you there? And what mm-hmm. kind of like initiatives and tactics you know you've implemented that you want to share with us today? Yeah. Uh, yeah, my Zarly experience was a roller coaster um, <laughs> that, you know, fast forward to the end of that story and I got fired from that job. So um, wow. that was a really devastating experience for me in my career. One that now is like a really critical part of my journey and I'm really grateful for. But at the time was the hardest thing I've ever mm. dealt with in my career. Um, I did a podcast about it on my podcast um, not too long ago, if anyone wants that full story. Um, but yeah, you know, so like the, the fast track of from college, got that first community manager job, um, ended up running that company, um, mm. which I'm skipping some steps, but uh, ended up being the general manager of the startup that hired me because um, we pivoted and the team worked on the new idea, which turned out to be SeatGeek, massive, oh. massive company today. Wow. Um, I helped them launch that, but then I continued to work on the original idea that we sold um, anyway, I ended up running that company for about a year and a half and then mm. Zarly poached me. I joined Zarly because a friend of mine, uh, Shane Mack was leading product there and he was like, Oh, we need a community person. We got to hire David. Mm. And, um, Zarly was a crazy story. They started in a startup weekend. Mm. Um, so, you know, hacking on an idea over a weekend and within a year, you know, they had raised $15 million from Ashton Kutcher and Groupon and Sense Capital and Kleiner Perkins. And we we're on like TechCrunch and Pando, like every single tech publication was writing. We were like the darling of Silicon Valley in the moment. Right. Um, and the idea was really cool. It was like a reverse Craigslist. So you can post anything that you want mm. and get um, uh, offers for that ask. Mm. Um and so, you know, you could think about it as like what Uber is today or um, DoorDash or uh, Lug, all these things that like you press a button and someone does something for you. Mm-hmm. Um, Zarly was first and did everything, which in hindsight mm. was a mistake. We should have done one thing, <laughs> like just get a car, right. or just get food or just get moving help. But right. we did everything. We launched in all these different cities all over the country which was another big mistake. I think if you're ever launching a marketplace for a community, the key is to mm. start as micro, small as possible and figure out the model in one place. Mm. And then once you have the model, you can repeat it. But if you try to go right. too big, too fast, um, before you really found that community market fit, then right. uh, you're you're replicating a flawed model. And that's what mm. ended up having, happening with Zarly. Um, but I, I learned a ton from that experience. I, you know, got to lead a team for the first time. Um, mm. A lot of like the first models that I developed of community and retention models and how community can drive value for business was mm. formed there, right? Like our job was to uh, build community amongst the sellers, um, right. make sure that there were enough sellers on the platform, that they were successful, that they were able to close the gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, we did events, we did local marketplaces, we did online community, we did ambassador programs, we did college ambassador programs, we did so nice. many things. And and we ran all the content, all the newsletters, blogs, all right. of that on my team. Right. So um, it was a lot of learning, 
uh, ended up getting completely overwhelmed. The product wasn't working across the whole company. So community mm. became really hard to do well. And it ultimately um, didn't work. And, you know, I got fired uh, once I started kind of just like taking, I was still young, you know, I, right, I still didn't right. know how to say no and how to set boundaries. And um, I was, I still didn't have a ton of experience for, for the role that I was put in, frankly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so um, I ended up just taking on much more than I could handle. Mm. Um, wasn't able to kind of like ask for the help I needed. And I just completely burned out and crashed. And that's when I got fired. That's a very uh, personal story. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and so for a marketplace product like Zarly or take Uber or anything, uh, there have been like marketplace products everywhere popping like each and every day. Uh, what are some key lessons for founders who are building marketplaces uh, that you can like, maybe like a top three lessons uh, that two things, one, they should avoid when they're building a community. Number two, uh, double down on these three things. Yeah, I, th I think, um, like I said, I think the, the number one thing is starting very, very, very small and focused, right? And, mm. and you look at any successful marketplace and you'll see that that's what they did. Um, take uh, Nextdoor, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, they started in one neighborhood, just one. And their right. whole team was fully invested and immersed in getting that neighborhood up and running to the extent right. that they literally went to like the local city council and mm. and got stage time to be able to talk to the community about what they wanted to do to bring the community together and give them a platform to talk to each other and mm -hmm. then they literally went door to door onboarding people knocking on their doors mm. and getting them to sign up for the platform and only right. after they successfully did that in one place did they start to now, okay, let's do, see if we could do this in another place and another one and another one. Right. And um, especially in like VC backed marketplaces, it's so easy to just try to launch in more cities, but um, you really want to just constrain your experiment as tightly as possible. So mm. you figure out what works, figure out that model in the most hands-on way possible, mm. right? That's the other part. Do things that don't scale. Stop right. trying to automate all your seller onboarding on day one. Like if you right. need to literally like go and spend 12 hours for the first week per day with them, do that to like make sure that they get through the process where they can be successful on the platform. And by right. doing that, you'll learn all the pieces of the process and you'll start to slowly identify which pieces can be automated. But, um, worry about automation zero to start mm -hmm. just be mm -hmm. as hands-on as you possibly can be as you need to be in order mm -hmm. to make that seller or or buyer uh successful right um and so you know you look at like yelp's another good example with um you know they they needed people to write reviews on the platform mm -hmm. and they needed a critical mass of people um, before they would launch. So what they actually did is they set a number. I think it was like, it might've been 150, but they, they needed to have a certain amount of people signed up to join Yelp before they would invest anything in that neighborhood, right? So they pre-validated any community before launching there. It's another good like way. They have, uh, they have like, they had like a threshold of, you know, if we meet X, okay, then we expand to exactly. another neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think those those are the critical things. Um, otherwise, you know, it's it's about getting the network effects in the flywheel 
Um, so like do whatever you can do to just fill up both sides of the funnel. Um, mm -hmm. I'm doing it right now, right? Like I'm right. trying to launch this uh, talent collective where mm -hmm. I'm helping companies hire community professionals. So I need mm -hmm. to fill both sides, right? I need right. candidates to sign up, um, right. which is a lot easier because uh, mm. it's free for them. Um, right. And then I need companies to sign up, which has been harder right. because it's a paid subscription. Um, right. I'm giving it to them for free for the first month to remove that right. barrier. Because um, right. I just, once I get enough people on both sides of the funnel, then it's mm. working and then I can start to build off that. But um, if you try to monetize or create too many barriers to entry to start, um, you lose that opportunity to see if you can get the flywheel going. Um, so I removed the cost barrier, but you know they still have to put a credit card in or the process to sign up isn't totally clear. Right. So again, I'm being as hands-on as possible. I'll get on the mm -hmm. phone with them. I'm talking to them on DMs every day, just like to get to mm. that threshold. My goal is 25 companies. Um, right. Once I get there, then I can start to think about, okay, what are the, what did it take to onboard that company and which pieces mm. of that process can I automate or hand off to a virtual assistant? Slowly, mm. I will get more and more hands off, but to kickstart mm. it, I'm going to be as small as possible, as niche as possible and be as hands-on as possible. Right. Yeah. I love, I love both of those lessons. Start as small as possible and, you know, do things that don't scale. Be involved as much as you can in the beginning days, which I think is is also uh, increases your face value as a community builder. You know them well, you get to, you know, you get to know them each other on a personal level, which, which will build the rapport uh, in a great way. Uh, Ooh, awesome. I have one, I have one more, actually, this mm -hmm. is a good one. Cause I want to write about this and I haven't said it yeah. publicly yet. So you get the scoop. Love, love that. Um, yeah. There's this, there's this concept I've been thinking about of like, imagine the community member journey um, or, mm -hmm. or a model that I often use is called the commitment curve, uh, which mm -hmm. came from organizational change. And the idea is like, imagine a graph um, mm -hmm. over time. There's this like curve up where um, people are becoming more committed to your community and, mm -hmm. and, and willing to take greater and greater action. Right. Mm. So, um, let's take like Airbnb, for example, at the beginning of that curve, the beginning of time, you might just be like reading about community, uh, about Airbnb. You're just right. kind of, uh, understanding the concept. Um, right. and then like, eventually you get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm willing to try staying at a, at, at an Airbnb. And then after a while you're like, well, this is great. I'm going to start hosting and become a mm. host on Airbnb and then eventually become a super host. So over right. time, as you get more comfortable and more committed to the community, you take greater right. and greater actions and make greater contributions to that community, mm -hmm. right? That's the commitment mm -hmm. curve. Mm -hmm. And when you're starting a marketplace or you're starting a community, what a lot of companies do is they start at the beginning of that curve. They mm. say, let's just start by educating people about what we do. We don't want to ask too much up front, mm -hmm. which is true once you have an established community and you're onboarding new people. Um, for the most part, you don't want to ask too much up front. You don't want to ask for this big commitment. Mm -hmm. But when you're validating a marketplace, you're trying to find that community market fit. Mm-hmm. The journey, the amount of time that it can take you to move someone through that entire journey. Like imagine someone who has no idea what Airbnb is getting to the point where they're comfortable hosting on Airbnb. That can mm -hmm. take years, right? Yeah. And like the whole yeah. system has to be working for that person to even feel like there's something there for them to progress through. Right. So 
um, I'm, I'm working on this with a client right now where um, in order to validate what their community is providing and in order to validate that they figured out the community model, what I think you should actually do is start at the end and okay. focus on the people who are already committed, right? So in an Airbnb example, don't start with a person who's literally never done any sort of rental or any sort of um, kind of communal experience before. Maybe you find people who like are already hacking ways to be able to rent out their apartment on Craigslist, or um, they're already participating in uh, couch surfing or other things that are like kind of relevant and similar. Um, figure out what are the things that, or find the people who are already convinced who are already bought in, who are already even trying to do mm -hmm. the thing that you want them to do. And then the, mm. the barrier that what you're actually trying to motivate them to do is right. just get over that hump to do it with you, to use your platform. That's a much shorter journey and shorter leap than trying to get someone all the way through mm. the funnel, right? So start with the end in mind, start with the people who are already convinced, who are already bought in, who may even already be trying to do the thing that you want to help them do um, before you try to like optimize for the whole funnel and launch your podcast and launch a blog and create all these educational materials. Like that's the long-term play, but right now your speed to community market fit is your priority. And starting at the end is how you're going to get there the fastest. Awesome. So, uh, so I think you, you've touched a very interesting concept, which I never thought about. The commitment curve uh, is, is to just to summarize what you said, it, founders should think from top down, not from bottom up, like educating you know, people about their product, about their marketplace, and them bringing them up to speed, and them seeing them graduate from one level to another to level, uh, where they feel like, okay, these are the champion community, uh, leaders in their product, at least, and the adoption can take years. I feel that's what you said, but uh, quite a quite a fascinating concept. So, any other examples you have? You said about Airbnb, which is like a classic uh, example. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, right, the idea is like start start with the people who are already convinced. Don't try to convince people. Um, to care about the thing you're doing, because that's going to take a really long time in order to get community market fit, find the people who are already trying to do the thing that you're going to help them do or already big believers in it and just bring them into what you're building, right? So like uh, another good example is that company Palette that I'm using for the talent collective. Like mm -hmm. I tried to create a talent collective like this probably three times already. And I tried to hack <laughs> it together with Airtable and no code tools where, right. you know, I'd tell candidates go here and apply and they would apply. And then I'd end up with this really big spreadsheet and then it would just break at, at about a hundred people. Cause I couldn't keep it updated. Like some if people right. stopped looking for jobs or they wanted to update their info. There was like no simple ways to do that. Anytime a company was like, Hey, who can you introduce me to? It would take a long mm. time to go through the list and find the right people and so I was already bought into this problem. I was already trying mm. to solve for it. So when Pallet reached out to me about it, they didn't have to convince me of anything other than right. that their tool could be a good solution for it. They didn't have to convince right. me of the problem. And so I think that's something that more companies should think about when building community or 
um, building a marketplace is um, if, if you're trying to convince people to become a seller or a creator or something on your platform, and they've never taken that action before and never shown any right. sort of signal that they're bought into it, that's a really long journey to move them right. to the point where they're going to be a contributor to the platform. Whereas if you start with people who are already showing that behavior, you mm. can get to, you, you can prove your experiment. You can get the community market fit a lot quicker. I'll give you one more example. Uh, going mm. back to Yelp, uh, an example I use a lot because they did so many good things with community. And mm -hmm. when they started, they needed to find people to write reviews on the platform and they created the Yelp elite program. Now right. they could have said like, all right, let's, you know, find anybody uh, out there who's a user or who might be interested in Yelp. And like over time, we'll move them to become a Yelp elite member and like write a lot of reviews. Um, that would have taken a long time to get people all the way through that mm. journey. If, you know, they, they had no kind of, existing interest or buy-in into that concept. So what they did is they designed the Yelp Elite program around what they called tastemakers. It was like mm. the person, there's always this person in every friend group, right? Who like <laughs> loves to be the first one to know about a new restaurant opening, right. is always planning right. something, uh, just likes to be that kind of curator and that tastemaker. That person mm. ended up being a perfect fit. They were already bought in to this idea that it's valuable to like experience these new places. And they already cared about their reputation in a way where writing reviews fit in with uh, their, their perception of their own identity and their habits. So they kind of started right. with the people who are already a good fit for Yelp Elite built out right. the model that way. And then they built out the rest of the commitment curve to say, great, how do we get people who are one step back or two steps back or three steps back from getting to right. this level? How do we help them through that journey? Um, start with the end. Don't start at the beginning of that commitment curve. I, I love it so much. And it's such a such an incredible advice for people who are just getting started building marketplaces, especially for founders. A couple of things I want to add. I feel, you know, what you said is absolutely true. We have to find people who have already skin in the game. They have some sort of, you know, knowledge, awareness, or they've been through this flow, whatever the you know problem the founders are solving, number one. Number two, uh, I'm just blanking it out. I feel there is also a sense of relatability to it. Like, you know, if you bring an expert as your first user, the domino effect will happen immediately because a lot many people who can who get inspired or look up to for that expert, of course, will follow. Take, take the tastemaker taste as an example. In that particular group, I guess, that guy or gal is, is a master of trying new restaurants, getting you know, reviews out, or get, get, giving the taste, uh, basically, the, whatever their, their review is. And the other four will naturally follow them because they lead by an example. The, the, the tastemaker is actually is the leader in a way for that group. So two incredible uh, outcomes can happen from it. Like, you know, so I love, I love that example so much. And yeah, we're, we're, I'm excited to see how, you know, your talent collective will go, you know, happy to like support in, in any way possible from my end as well. Let me, let me, like, let's actually switch gears here and talk about CMX. Tell, so you've, you've just got fired from Zarly. 
sorry for laughing but it's it, i think it's the best best thing Great happened laugh. to me yeah <laughs> yeah because i feel like everything you did afterwards uh it changed the way you know not just for yourself but the, the for the whole community industry you know and tell me about after zarly i believe you know you've started cmx tell me about the intention you know why why did you start uh cmx in the first place what was the initial idea yeah so um so i was working on zarly kind of kind of on the side a side hustle in a way um throughout my career started kind of shortly after college um i collaborated on a project called the communitymanager.com with jen pd and brett petersell and um we were like writing a lot about community we had a job board it, it was kind of like one of the first communities for community managers um and um you know so i started building up kind of a good network that way and a good reputation started meeting lots and lots of community managers um and uh i got fired from zarly um after that I, i had a few things that happened kind of between then and cmx i uh was depressed for three months and played a lot of video games i had just moved to san francisco like zarly moved me out to the bay area from new york that's why i moved out there and oh. and then i was fired a month later <laughs> so i was just but i wanted to stay because i wanted to i wanted to be in the bay area it's kind of where everything right. was happening and right. so i stayed i was in this apartment uh my roommates who are now my best friends in the world but at the time you know i i found the place on craigslist they didn't know me they're like <laughs> oh shit <laughs> what did we do inviting this person into our house he's just sitting on the couch all day playing video games um uh so maybe not to stop you there but Yeah. Many good things happened to you after Zali like you found your best friends you fell in love with San Francisco and of course CMX Elivik uh, carry on Oh yeah so so many good things came out of that and like ultimately like me staying there was going to be really really bad for me like mentally uh right. in in every way right it just wasn't right, a, right. a good setup for anyone so um I'm in in hindsight I'm grateful that mm. they fired me and like the CMO who fired me is like a good friend of mine now like we we still we talk about it like um right. we both we both fucked up a lot of things at the time and <laughs> we learned a lot um right. we've done an interview about it too i don't know if anyone's ever done an interview with someone that fired them but um, <laughs> i have um so yeah and and then um a really good friend of mine thomas knoll um he was leading community for a conference called le web which is the biggest tech conference in europe and he was stepping mm. down from that role and uh told Loic Lemire the founder he's like oh you should talk to David Spinks he's um not currently working <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> really but games. he's awesome and um I spoke to Loic he was like great you know would love to have you work with me on the web so I started that as a consultant as a like part-time contractor oh. I was working on community there part-time right and that that's where I like slowly started to build up my confidence again like I remember the day where Loic told me he was like I've you like you're doing such incredible work like i've never had a community manager or anyone build community as well as you do and i was like oh i guess mm. i'm not a total piece of shit um <laughs> and uh, uh so i like started building my confidence back up which it's a good reminder if you have anyone reporting to you one little right. compliment like that could actually be very meaningful yeah. if it hits them at the right time absolutely right and so um i also ended up doing some consulting for udemy and helped them launch their first community for the teachers on nice. that platform i then started a company called feast with my roommate nadia ekbal yeah the um, the cook, cooking 
cooking yeah. thing, right? You mentioned like it in a, the book. Yeah, exactly. We would deliver all the ingredients to your home and you'd get these like online courses so you can do cooking classes at home. Nice. Um, that was interesting. I figured if nothing yeah. else, I would learn how to cook and I did. Right. So startup didn't work, but that class is actually still going. We ended up selling the wow. course um, to Daria Rose, uh, who it's now called the Foodist Kitchen. So you can still take the course if you go to Foodist Kitchen um, or the Foodist Bootcamp nice. and Foodist Kitchen's her website. And yep. so, yeah, so I had a bunch of these kinds of experiences. Feast was um, not really working and Nadia mm-hmm. and I decided we wanted to wind it down. Um, and my friend Max Altschuler came to me and said like, hey, do you want, uh, you, you've been telling me about this idea for a conference uh, for community managers for a long time, right? Because um, uh, on the communitymanager.com team, we had always talked about wanting to do a conference and for years it just like didn't happen. Um, I didn't know how to run a conference. It was like very intimidating. And Mm. Max had just run sales hacker, a conference that he started for salespeople. And he basically said like, do you want to do that conference? I know how to run one now. Um, uh, he, you know, I can handle all the logistics and partnerships. If you handle marketing and speakers and like just tap into the network that you've built up. And I said, all right, you know, let's try it out. Nothing to lose. We put together that first event in five weeks literally wow. from shaking our, from shaking hands. Uh, it was five weeks and we had over 300 people come out from all over the world to that first CMX summit. And, you know, it was one of those moments where it was like clear community market fit from right. day one, from that first event. It was like, right. oh, there's something special yeah. here. Just the energy in that room of community builders who felt alone and isolated and undervalued right. for their entire career now surrounded with people who are like them, who know them, who understand right. them, who understand what they do, who value them. And, and we got on stage and celebrated them and told them their work is important and going to be the future of business. And it just, right. it, it all clicked. And, uh, and I was like, oh, okay, this is what I should be working on. And so we right. uh, wound down Feast and I switched my full-time focus over to CMX. That's so awesome. There are like so many things uh, I want to touch uh, there, but uh, so it came from your, your curiosity, number one, and the model you said actually worked with CMX, the commitment curve. You didn't like try to bring people who are new to community. You brought people who are already experts in community building. So that's a classic example right there for CMX too. And, oh man, like, so you did so many things, David. And one of the things I really admire you as a person, apart from, you know, founder, and all that, that's all good, is you're very vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable, you, you, you're not hiding from everybody. You're basically putting yourself out. And I saw so many of, tweet, of your tweets or, or your blogs, you, you kind of like put yourself out in that position. So that's a greatest strength for any community builder, uh, at least in my opinion. And you've exhibited that multiple times. And even in this conversation, you just you know said so many things. Uh, so I love that. And what, what are some things you did at the beginning of CMX? So you've, you've collaborated with Max, you kind of decided that you go on, you want to go all in for CMX. You hosted the first summit. And it is a great number from zero. So congrats on that. What was, how, how did like 300 went to 20,000 and what was like the first, you know, maybe the initial do things that don't scale, uh, 
things you did for CMX the early days? Yeah, I mean, the things that don't scale for that conference, like that was, it was all hands-on legwork. Like every speaker was somebody that um, I either cold outreach to that didn't know me or like I tapped into uh, people that I knew already and asked them for favors, right? Like I asked mm. the guy Atishi who ran community Airbnb and Emily Castor who's running community at Lyft and Dave McClure who ran 500 startups. Like mm. I asked them like, hey, if I do this conference, would you speak and got them bought in first? And they said, yes. And then I used that to go to other speakers like David McMillan, who invented the sense of community theory and Robin Drake, mm. who ex FBI agent. And I was like, Hey, I'm putting together this conference. It's the first one of its kind. I can't pay you, but you know, it's, right. it's going to be really magical. Here are some of the people who are speaking. And some of them said yes. And then I was like, great. I have a speaker lineup. So then we went and put together the, the landing page with the speakers. And then I probably sent out, 200 emails individually right. one at a time to every community professional I knew and asked right. them like, Hey, you know, if I do this event, would you come and attend, uh, hear the speakers and just like manually got buy-in from people. And I was like, great. Okay. You can buy tickets now. Here you go. Um, hmm. so it was very, very hands-on to get that first event going. Um, and then, uh, yeah, after that, after the first event was successful, Max and I were feeling real high and mighty. And we were like, great, <laughs> let's start organizing our next event. Let's do one in New York City. Right. And this one went so well, we got 300 people. Let's, uh, let's go for 500 people. Let's like really level up our goals. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> uh, we almost lost the shirts off our back on that second conference. We, wow. <laughs> um, uh, you know, we're really ambitious. Turned out New York was a much more difficult market to, right. uh, to run this conference in. Uh, there were a lot less community people already in New mm. York, whereas the Bay Area already had a big um, established community. Again, go to the end, like go to where people already are. Don't, get yep, them, yep. don't try to get people mm -hmm. to go somewhere else. Um, it took us many years to learn that. We tried uh, conferences yep. in a lot of different places with CMX. Um, we did LA, we did Portland, we did New York. And then ultimately we were like, we should just do this in the Bay Area. This is where like the right. most people are. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we like, were really struggling to move tickets. And, um, and it was like getting to be a month before the event. And we were like, we are going to lose tens of thousands of dollars on this mm. event. Like, and like we we're paying for everything out of pocket at the time. There was no right. funds. We bootstrapped well, it, you know, all the way through to the acquisition. It was it was bootstrapped, and hmm. so um, you know we we just pulled some really chaotic, scrappy moves in the last month, and we ended up tell, switching tell venues. Me. Two yeah, weeks tell me more about the, the. Tell me more about the scrappy moves. Yeah, we we switched venues. Like that was probably the biggest one. Is we switched venues two weeks before the event. Like imagine you're oh, going wow. to a conference and two weeks before the conference emails you and they're like, this is going to be at a different spot than where we told you. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a much smaller, much more affordable spot that ended up saving us tens of thousands of dollars, even with, I think we paid like two or three times the cancellation fee and the contract to the original venue. Like we worked really hard to make everyone whole on anything that we mm. need to change, but like, it was literally survival mode and, you know, they, they understood luckily. And um, we were able to save a lot of money that way. 
and just like cut every cost we could to, to just like make it as lean as possible. And we're able to like really hustle to sell, you know, a few more tickets at the end and do mm-hmm. bulk deals and things like that and get a couple last minute sponsors in. And, right. you know, we were able to break even on that event. We didn't make any money, but we didn't lose money. And, right. you know, right. we were able to like survive basically in order to be right. able to host the next conference um, back in San Francisco, um, which, uh, yeah, so we, host, we ended up hosting three conferences that first year. The next San Francisco event went a lot better. Uh, it's funny. Mm. You'll talk to attendees. <laughs> a couple of attendees were just making fun of me the other day because like, this, the venue we chose for the third one was this uh, pier and it was like freezing cold. And <laughs> it, was, it was just like, it's, it's funny to think back at all the scrappy kind of experiences right. that we had building it up yeah. in the early days. But, um, you know, we just hustled to like get it going and be able to mm-hmm. live another day to host another conference. We ended up hosting a couple more in New York as well. Nice. And, um, you know, just continue to grow it from there. Love that. Any, uh, any, any experiments you made, you know, I know it's kind of like a in-person conference, but what else you, did you do when in between conferences that happened and how did you engage, you know, you, you have to like make people stick to a certain mission and a community should drive, should have a mission by itself, by default, right? Whether it can be a product community or, you know, a hobby community or, you know, a community that, that just brings people together. So how did you think about like, you know, 10 attendees came for conference one, those 10 should also come to conference two, right? That's how you basically, the direction should be there since it's a conference, maybe the rules apply differently, but how, how did you manage uh, that? Like uh, bringing same folks, same faces back to, cause that builds credibility in a way and it builds longevity uh, as well. Uh, yeah. So curious about that. Yeah. I mean, I think you just want to keep people engaged so that like the next time you host an event, you know, you still have their attention and their awareness. Um, one thing I've learned over the years is the best time to sell tickets to your next conference is at the current conference. <laughs> so um, something we didn't do enough back that. then, but now, you know, we always try to do is tickets for next year are on sale. Um, right. during, they go on sale during mm. this year's event. Cause that's when people are at their like peak moment and, really excited mm. and you could give them a really good discount, yeah. make it fully refundable. So there's no risk. Like that's right. going to be the best time to sell tickets to next year. Um, outside of that. Yeah. Just, um, you know, it's, it's about building that cadence of community uh, that we all talk about a lot. And I talk a lot about in the book. Um, mm-hmm. One of the analogies that comes to mind right now that I write about in the book is thinking about community like music. And mm. so you think about like a song that has, um, kind of like a steady beat, like a steady cadence that keeps you engaged. And then there's kind of like the build up, and then there's the big chorus or crescendo. And so like, I think right. about that in community, you have kind of like the really, the, the steady beat, which could be like um, online content. It can be your online mm-hmm. forum or message board or community. It's more about uh, breadth than depth, but you're just kind mm-hmm. of keeping people engaged, it could be newsletter, something like that. And then you have kind of your choruses, which might be like a monthly meetup or an event mm. or something that kind of brings them together in a bigger, more produced way. And then you right. have your big crescendo once a year with your big conference, your big gathering. Right. And I kind of like that idea of having small, medium and large ways of people connecting mm. and the amount of work and production you put into each one kind of goes by that small, medium and large measurement. 
And so for right. CMX, yeah, like the big events was kind of what sparked CMX. Um, it was built on the foundation of like other, you know, work that I, relationships I built and like engagement and writing and the community manager.com and like all the work that, um, that we had done to that point. And, um, and then, uh, you know, the Facebook group, we created a Facebook group for that first conference just for attendees mm-hmm. to be able to talk to each other. And it became so highly engaged from that conference that um, we just like turned it into the general CMX hub community is what it ended up being mm. called. And yep. that became the online gathering place. And that community was, you know, thriving for many, many, many years. Um, it's mm. kind of uh, plateaued a little bit now. And actually our community is more active on Slack now, interestingly. Right. Um, right. But like that was like a buzzing space for many, many years. And, um, you know, we launched a content engine and um carrie melissa jones came on and ran content for cmx and so we were Mm. publishing annual research we were publishing articles we started inviting members of the community to contribute their their um, ideas and their experiences and lessons and you know there there were some communities and resources for for community professionals at the time the community manager.com there's uh, the community leadership summit there are like some some solid ones that still exist today um, but like, you know, still uh, a space that um, there was just so much room for content, right. so many lessons and experiences that just still weren't being shared. And so just like an unlimited pool of opportunity to create and connect. And we just right. you know kept working to be able to tap into that, to pull out the insights, to pull out the contact, to create opportunities to connect and just, mm. yeah, keep, keep creating that community. I love that. That's uh, that's so fascinating and inspiring for folks who are listening. And the thing you did with events was very clever. You sell your next events tickets in your current events because everyone's high. Everyone's pretty much enjoying. You don't have to like sell again them or like sell the purpose or sell the benefit. They're all like, you know, bought in already. Yeah. I think it works really well for events too, not just for big conferences. If you have another event coming up, sell that event in your current event. If you're hosting a fireside chat, sell your next AMA or anything that you're hosting. I love that. Yeah. Thanks everyone for coming. Uh, This is who's going to be speaking next month. You can go ahead and sign up right now. Uh, You just got an email in your inbox from us with the link. So make sure to sign up because it's going to fill up quick, right? Like it's a pretty (laughs) easy playbook to um, just like, if you get one step ahead of your next event and just always have that next thing ready, um, right. it's, it's, it's easier to build that retention. Love that. Let, let's actually switch gears a little bit and talk about the book, the business of belonging. <coughs> I love it so much. Nice. It's, I feel it's, it's the Bible for community builders. Just have to like read through. I love, and thanks for sharing in such a detail of your journey from going a zero to one to N. Um, and, and you mentioned one of the fascinating topics uh, methodologies, I would say, is the concept of spaces. You know, we talk about support, product acquisition, contribution, engagement, and success. It's kind nice. of like a, well it's like kind of like a. <laughs> I, I memorized it because you know I want to want like you know uh, implementing it at Thredo and for my <laughs> own purposes. So, tell me about it. How come you you came up with the concept? Number one, number two is. What's its relevancy given the stage we are in, given the ecosystem right now in startups? Because a lot, many companies, they just focus on 
adding more value to the existing customers and any examples or any successful uh, shout outs you want to give like you've worked with tons of clients who've implemented spaces before for inspiration yeah so um spaces model like you said uh it's 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 a you know a simple framework for understanding the value of community or articulating what the value is and um i created it along with my team um so mm. you know pretty much all the frameworks that cmx has created we created in collaboration uh carrie jones evan hamilton erica mcgillray and stephen brody were all contributors to it as well um mm. and so what why did we create it uh because uh understanding, proving, measuring the value of community is something that community teams have struggled with for as long as we've all been doing this work. Community is a term that's used to describe so many different things. And right. what I just started noticing was that like, there were different kinds of community programs. You can break down this larger concept of community-driven business into these different themes or ways of building community to drive different goals. And one thing I noticed is that community was actually driving goals for all these different teams within the company. It wasn't just one thing. Um, some, some companies were building community that was driving that support. So like creating a customer support form where customers could answer questions for each other and solve problems for each other. Some were yeah. really building community to focus on product. Um, where mm -hmm. they could collect feedback and insights and ideas from the community or acquisition right. where they have ambassador programs, community led content that's bringing new people mm -hmm. to it. So it's all these different parts of the business that community is driving. Really what you could think of is your community is sort of this like reservoir that you can pull from and you, you know, think of a reservoir of water. You can drink some, you can use some to make drinks. You mm -hmm. can use some to grow plants. Like you can use that resource for all these different things community is this resource of people who are motivated, who have ideas, who want to contribute, who want to help, who want to give back. And you can direct them in all these different directions that drive all these different parts of the business, right? Support, product, mm -hmm. acquisition, right. contribution right. is like an Airbnb or any sort of marketplace right. or anywhere we want contributors. Um, engagement is essentially retention, right? Like customer engagement and mm -hmm. then success. It's customer success. How successful are they at adopting right. the products and using the product? Um, so um, it's, it's, it's been our most widely adopted model. Um, I highly recommend mm -hmm. using it at the very early stages of your uh, community strategy. When, when you're designing your community strategy, you should really start with an understanding of what business goal you're trying to achieve before mm -hmm. you start designing the community engagement methods and, and right. tactics. Um, otherwise you end up just building community for the sake of community and then trying to figure right. out the business value later, which um, right. I can tell you is a recipe for a lot of stress. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, yeah, there's countless good examples of companies who have applied the spaces model in lots of different ways. One of my favorite ones to share is uh, the Salesforce Trailblazer program. And, mm. you know, Trailblazer is a very uh, success-driven program. Um, so uh, it's where their admins can like train each other and get trained and support each other. Um, they also, Salesforce also drives uh, support community programs. They do, mm -hmm. um, they do acquisition community programs with things like Dreamforce and um, ambassador right. programs. So Salesforce is a company that now today uh, is, is driving value in a lot of different parts of the business 
a lot of different parts of the spaces model. Um, but they started with just one when Erica Cool first started it. Um, she was really mm -hmm. focused on marketing because that's where she knew she could get buy-in from the team and support and budget, right. which is a smart, right. savvy way of deciding where to start is like, what's the thing right. that matters most to the business today? Um, right. And then once you prove out that model and you operationalize it, then you can add other parts of the spaces model. But I'd really recommend starting with one, just like Erica did. I, I love that. Uh, yeah, shout out to Erica. I met her at CMX this year. Uh, when she's she's a she's a beast. Uh, she yeah. she goes on and on she and is. on. Uh, I love I love the the story behind you know spaces as well. Uh, how how should founders think about community led growth? You know, community led growth is such a. It's been on every everybody's you know, mine recently, uh, after product led growth, you know, community led growth is you basically build a community before you're building a product and you get into, uh, adoption, you get into like building that early, early believer set and you like scale on top of it and keeping community closer to product, build that tight feedback loop and whatnot, uh, and give the firsthand experience to a set of people who believe in you as a, as a, as a startup, right? So on and all, uh, what do you think about that? And at the same time, uh, how should founders take it? Take it with uh, about balance between both methods: product-led growth versus community-led growth. Um, well, so so there's a couple of things there. I think when we talk about product-led growth, what we're often talking about is building kind of these like growth hooks into the product, like mm -hmm. refer a friend or you know, getting people to share things or invite other people to the platform, things like that, um, right. which, which is really good, valuable, um, can be community related in terms of like, maybe you have a community program to engage your, mm -hmm. uh, the people who are your top referrers or your top ambassadors, and you give them kind of those product tools to be able to grow it. Um, but I would mm -hmm. say those are kind of two different lanes, right? You have your product led growth, which are things you build into the product. Um, you have community-led growth, which is um, empowering members of the community to contribute to growth, either by referring people directly or creating mm -hmm. content or speaking at events on your behalf or whatever it is that you're um, building out in order to drive growth through community. Or you're building mm -hmm. just a community space or an event or something to attract people into your funnel or your center mm -hmm. of gravity or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as far as like integrating community and product, yeah, there there's a lot that can be done there. Um, you know, you you have the very early stage startups all do this, right? You you find your early adopters and you just spend a lot of time working with mm -hmm. them, being very hands on with them, watching them use a product. You create focus groups, you host very small events or discussion groups to be able to learn from them, to hear how they talk to each other about the product, to Mm -hmm. um, observe them, uh, just staying really close with that community of early adopters to be able to identify how to tweak your product and make it really special for them. Um, mm. You could go much larger scale and do things like um, an idea exchange, right? Like, right. like WordPress has this and uh, uh, Xbox had this. I don't know if they still have an Xbox ideas community. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Starbucks has has had this where like, people can share ideas for things mm. that 
uh, that they want to see improved in the product. And then other people can vote up those ideas and add their own comments. And it's right. basically just a, a good way of crowdsourcing innovation and ideas from right. your community that you can apply to the product. Mm -hmm. um, or on the fullest end of the spectrum, in the most hands-on way, you create something that's open source or create some sort of platform-led strategy a lot of mm -hmm. kind of developer communities uh, design these these kinds of programs where you empower members of the community to actually build within mm. the ecosystem, um, right? It could be like Notion and what they do with like empowering people to create their own templates and docs. Um, right. Anything open source is going to be this kind of model. Right. Um, yep. WordPress, all right, open source where anyone can build their own themes and tools and products on top of it. Um, so that kind of platform right. approach is the fullest extent of this kind of community-led product approach. I love that. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's 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 that fine balance a product founders should make. And I truly believe uh, community can be part of a product early on. Like you said, how you, you involve these early adopters. Do like a case study on them, how they went from zero to one using a particular product, like put it out you know, buy in from other uh, potential customers and so on and so forth. Like use social proof as an example. That's another thing community pumps in. Social proof is a really important aspect of uh, early adoption. Uh, there are like tons of things founders can do. I love, love a couple of tips from you. I do have like a couple of more questions. One is uh, what should be in your opinion, again, what's the, what's the mindset of a community builder should be like when either they're starting a, community or they're joining as a as a community manager uh, for another further community which is already built uh, or successfully like you know thriving mm. yeah I, I think like if you're if you're starting a community uh solve your own problem uh mm. focus on the thing that you are genuinely interested in curious about like follow your curiosity i like using curiosity right. rather than passion like something mm. that you think about all the time and you have a thousand questions bubbling around your head and you want to learn more about that right. kind of curious energy is what's going to be exciting to other people who share that kind of curiosity and you'll have a never ending flow of ideas. Like it's been 13 years and I still can't stop thinking of questions and topics and things for community. <laughs> I'm still very curious right. with the topic. Um, right. And like starting CMX, starting Feast, uh, starting pretty much everything I've started <laughs> has always been to like solve my own problem. Mm. And I just think that's the most authentic way to build things and to build communities. Um, if you're joining a company to run a community, um, hopefully it's a topic that you feel genuinely mm -hmm. curious about. Um, if not, uh, it's still possible to be successful. And I've seen a lot of people who, you know, you could put them in any community and they're, they're so good at like getting in <laughs> there and, and still building a really authentic community. I would say um, the mentality is just uh, to develop that, that appreciation for your members and that deeper understanding of them. So I would spend, you know, the first 30 days without goals, without mm. like a big strategy, without right. any sort of expectations other than just talk to as many mm. members in as many formats, in small groups, one-on-one, -on -one, in events, online, offline, over email, 
um, just like immerse yourself in who these people are, what their experiences are, what their challenges are, so that you can develop a true authentic empathy for mm-hmm. the work that they do or the challenges that they have um, for what they're curious about. Uh, right. Because if you can come from that really true, deep place of empathy and understanding, that's how you're going to be able to build a community. It's really compelling to them. Otherwise, you're just going to feel like an outsider coming in right. and trying to get them to participate without um, understanding why they should be motivated to in the first place. I, I love this so much. Build for yourself. And if you're joining another existing community, just do it for fun, you know, interact with people. And that's what I'm doing with, you know, Threado as well. It's to get to know as many people as I can so that I can create value for them. It's just like product building. That's another thing I'm kind of like dwelling uh, on my mind. This thought of product building, community building is pretty much same. You have to do things for others, but you have to start for yourself or else, you know, you'll get lost in, in, in the transition or in, in, in the journey of going from here to there. I love that. Like, I think we will record this particular segment and uh, snippet to uh, launch as a trees teaser like trailer. It. We got our social media post. Yeah, there you go. Uh, last question. So you took a sabbatical and you're very vocal about it. And uh, you left CMX. You're also very vocal about it. Uh, what's next for David Spinks? I'm, I'm, I know <laughs> this question because I met you and like I kind of asked you, but uh, well, what's, what are you working on? What's next for uh, you're bringing Masters of Community back? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, the podcast is something that keeps bubbling up in my head as. Uh something a question of whether or not i should bring it back or not um yeah well so i actually i have that newsletter uh Mm. post that's literally titled what will i do next where i share kind of all the ideas and projects that have been bubbling around in my head that maybe i'll do maybe i won't um for now um you know i'm 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 still very much in um what's what's the word uh I'm blanking on the word right now, but it's basically like an intermediate time um, where, uh, you know, there's kind of CMX and the work I did before and the identity I had before. And then Mm. there's some other version of my identity out there in the future, but Mm. um, a liminal space. That was the word I'm looking for. I'm in the liminal space between like who Mm. I was and who who will I become in Mm. in a lot of ways and professionally uh, with my professional identity we moved across the country after being in San Francisco for 10 years. I now live back in New York where I grew up. Um, we're having another kid soon. Our second baby's due in January. So it's like a Congrats. lot of, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Congrats. So mm-hmm. uh, a lot of change in my life. I'm in this very big liminal space between who I was right. before a lot of these changes and who I am and who I'm becoming. And so uh, that's a scary time. And the, the question of what will I do next, next is probably one of the scariest, but mm. um, what I'm doing now in this liminal space is just trying to stay really present with mm. what, what, what goes through my mind. Um, I'm using writing as a tool to process. Mm-hmm. And so my newsletter is my number one focus right now. Um, you can subscribe mm. to that at uh, davidspinks.com yep. and go to, yep. it's on Substack. I'm, I'm writing every day uh, or I'm working three days a week right now and I'm writing 
in the morning of each of those days. Um, nice. Both my own personal journey, things I'm thinking about, kind of personal growth stuff, things about sabbatical. And then I'm also starting to write more kind of community um, right. lessons and opinion pieces and different things that I'm observing in this space. Um, right. So th that's my main focus right now is just writing and um, learning through that process and you know, growing a, another community in a way through that mm -hmm. process. Um, and then while I'm doing that, I'm tinkering with uh, hopefully not too many side projects because I'm really trying to be strict <laughs> and set boundaries around my time. But the two right. other things I'm doing right now are one consulting. So um, I only consult with a few companies at a time. Um, and I essentially work as a strategic advisor to help right. them kind of either they're at the very early stage finding community market fit or they're trying to scale or trying to figure mm -hmm. hire whatever they need. I, I help clients with that. Um, and then I'm testing out this talent collective where I'm yep. helping companies hire for community and helping great community candidates find quality job opportunities at companies that are legitimately investing in community. Right. And so um, you can find that. Um, I guess actually I don't have a link to that yet, but if you just um, message me on Twitter at David Spinks. Sure. I will send you send you the details because I'm I'm just testing that out, but I'm really excited about that because I think um, I think it's something that can be helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, of course. I'll link. We'll link all the all the things you mentioned in the show notes for sure. Listen, Perfect. David, we can we can go on and on and on and on. You you and I we both know about that, uh, but you know I, I want to respect your time and you know uh, close on a high note. Listen, thank you so much. I appreciate you as a person. You know, you know that I love you and you've done so much for the community and uh, you've, you're, you have, you've like contributed so much as, you know, inspired people like me uh, to get into the community space and uh, yeah, you keep on going and we love you so much uh, for everything you do. So thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Arath. You, you inspire me as well and your, your energy <laughs> that you bring to the space and everything you do um, and, you know, your ability to side hustle while building community and building products. You, you're someone <laughs> who uh, brings a really unique perspective to the space and a lot of great experience and every community I've seen you work on, you really do bring your full self to it and you're passionate about it. You follow your curiosity. So um, I, I, I can't wait to see all the things you continue to accomplish in your journey. I feel like you're, you're just getting started. I know. Yeah. We're just getting started and just following your footsteps, you know, adapting that same curiosity and energy. <laughs> Make your own footsteps. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, David. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. Bye. <laughs>